0: The Kern Institute Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Medical Education Matters. I'm Michael Brown. I'm so pleased to be joined today by our guest, Dr. Vanessa Rampton. She is a senior researcher affiliated with the Department of Equity, Ethics, and Politics at McGill University. Uh, McGill, of course, is in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And she works with Assisted Lab. That's a project based in Switzerland at a university there on the topic of assisted dying. So, as we continue our conversation about tech in med ed, we were struck by a paper that Vanessa wrote called "Implications of Artificial Intelligence for Medical Education." And we thought there is no better title, no closer fit to what we've been talking about than exactly this. So. Uh, Let's go ahead and welcome Vanessa and get to talking about her paper. Well, welcome, Dr. Vanessa Rampton. It's such a pleasure to have you.
1: Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: You're so welcome, Vanessa. We're so glad you could join us today. Um, well, let's just get right into your paper here because I'm I'm kind of interested in making sure the audience, first off, I want them to go read the paper, of course, but uh, making sure they have a sense of what this paper is about. And then we can start to talk a little bit more about the implications and other things when we think about medical education. So can you give us a quick overview of your arguments, what the paper contains?
1: Sure, I'm happy to. So maybe just to start off, I could say that we wrote this paper uh, together with with two colleagues, one um, a medical educator, and the other a patient advocate. Um, And I myself came uh, from from philosophy, from a philosophical background. And so it was really this collaboration between the three of us. And we wrote it in 2020, which, in terms of what's going on with artificial intelligence, already some time ago, but one of the, we were kind of watching developments around us in 2017, uh, a robot had passed um, a medical licensing exam in China, that had gotten a lot of press. And there was this, this feeling of changes happening really fast, patients um, becoming more and more kind of literate with AI-powered devices, um, them being used in the clinic, and a leg whereby medical education was not yet comprehensively addressing this—the rise of artificial intelligence systems. It, they weren't really being integrated into the teaching curriculum, different kinds of learning. And and we wrote this paper, we just kind of zoomed in on one particular aspect of um, medical education uh, to talk about competency frameworks and how the competency frameworks that are used today. um, And we had, we used a fairly common one. It's it's based in Canada, but it's used internationally. It's called CanMeds. There are similar ones um, that are used in the States to see how you know, how this could be updated in the era of AI, and I guess what we found was that some things some things change and others stay the same. Basically, that the CanMEDs competency framework for physicians does throw back to a number of physician roles which are based in kind of social sciences and humanities topics. So. There was scope there for saying okay we have these new technologies but we, we kind of have a framework which can give us tools to think critically about them and at the same time what we found is that digital health technologies were modifying every pretty much all competencies across the board so just to give um, maybe maybe one example of that. Um, one of uh, physician competencies or one of physicians' roles is to act as a collaborator. And one of the things that health AI is doing is to change existing dynamics between between physicians. So it's important to note that, you know, it can really empower some types of health practitioners. I'm thinking, for example, of physician assistants, um, nurse practitioners. Um, patients, patients as well, um, and and conversely, I guess some medical specialities that traditionally had a very kind of yeah n- relatively narrow form of knowledge of expertise, um, radiologists, for example, maybe also pathologists, anesthesiologists, they also found their work being transformed by AI in a in a very different way. Um, yeah, so that was that was the gist of of our piece, and yeah, it came out of it came out of another collaboration uh, which we worked on uh, in the context of the BMJ, so the British Medical Journal, and that was kind of a a bigger yeah discussion of whether whether AI could ever replace physicians entirely. So, and in that piece, we were. The nature of this BMJ head-to-head piece is you kind of argue um, opposing sides. So one side argues yes, the other argues no, and and we were the same, we were the same co-authors basically, and and that that setup of arguing these opposing sides felt a little bit artificial, <laughs> and we wrote we wrote this piece uh, on the implications of AI for medical education to try to yeah because we wanted to <laughs> come together effectively and, and collaborate.
0: Well, I suppose now we could ask a large language model to debate itself about the uh, pros and cons of this integration. Um, and and then we wouldn't have to worry about co-authors uh, battling with each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: true. That's true. And you probably have a good answer.
0: <laughs> Your point about radiologists and the way that AI has been incorporated into that type of practice made me think about a previous episode we did with Dr. Pak Tang. And he talked about the use of AI in things like uh, predicting risk for investments or the worthiness of a loan, ways in which the financial services industry has used AI. One of the results of that is people feeling like their own judgment is now being discounted, their own experience is being devalued, and their own worth as an individual and as a person isn't as important. Uh, and the result, of course, is skepticism toward the tools in a sense that uh that things like practical wisdom no longer have a place in these practices. With radiologists or with other areas like this, are you seeing the same thing happen in clinical settings? And and if so, is that a is that a problematic thing? Are there ways in which those pushbacks are are harmful? Mm,
1: that's a really good question. So uh, on the particular topic of radiology, there was an interesting study published in the UK um, relatively recently, kind of beginning of this year, where uh, basically radiologists taking the kind of exam that radiologists have to take to be allowed to practice um, were compared with an AI system who took a mock exam, but um, who took it. And the, the authors of the study, yeah, really, Analyze got a lot of detailed material, analyzed these results. And what, what was really interesting about what they were seeing was that the AI system did pretty well. It didn't kind of yeah, it wasn't uh you know off the charts better than your average radiologist. But humans, so the human radiologists who they had involved in the study often um were kind of deferential to the AI system, they actually expected it to be better than it was. Oh, so I don't yeah, I don't know if that result is it sounds like it's almost the opposite result from what yeah. the previous guest was was talking about. Um maybe yeah and, and maybe it has to do maybe it has to do with with trust, with expectations, maybe there's a difference between yeah how you feel about your your ability or your your kind of how you link your identity to your ability to make investments in a way that's that's different from um, your identity and your ability to read medical images. Um, but that's that whole issue of how humans react to these systems is for sure one that's that's going to be around and there are, there are lots of interesting empirical um, material is going to yeah shed light on the issue.
0: Yeah, and these kind of decision making systems and advice guidance systems. I know that's a robust area of literature in in all types of decision making fields. Understanding what creates a sense of trust, what creates uh, a sense of of deference to the tool, and a willingness to accept that advice and move forward with it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I agree, it's a fascinating area of study and one that one that allows us to look to the past and other research done in this well before we had. AI models that can so effectively mimic human speech and human writing, probably with lessons to offer us moving forward. Um, So that's excellent. You know, I, I often worry that we're in a field now where things are moving so fast that looking to the past for guidance is perhaps not as fruitful as we would like it to be. But perhaps this is one area where our past research on advice giving and other things does offer a lot of guidance.
1: Yeah, I was just speaking to a, a colleague um in the UK, so a physician, about this uh about this topic reason who was saying that in her in research she was doing that, that key issue, as you say, the one of trust, um is it comes up for patients when they say, Yeah, we we trust our our healthcare providers. We we kind of patients apparently tend to trust individual people on their healthcare team and and she was saying that's you know that that's that's great in a way that's as it should be the problem kind of arises when the individual physicians are yeah are, are in some way delegating some tasks to systems that they themselves have trouble explaining and and yeah how how does that you know well um like highly valuable kind of reservoir of patient trust. How, how does that continue to apply uh, when the humans themselves are not, yeah, are, are not so in tune with their own systems?
0: Well, and you, I can imagine if you put the role of a, a advice generating uh, algorithm if you put that front and center with the patient, does the patient say, wow, I don't trust this. I don't want that. But do you have the same problem if you try to hide it behind several Mm -hmm. layers of of obfuscation where the doctor isn't being transparent? It feels like the revealing that at some point in time, you know, for the patient, when the patient is asking why, and the physician says, well, this is what, you know, this is how we approach this. And we have this algorithm that does these calculations. Does that have the effect of undermining trust even more? Mm -hmm. So introducing that third party dynamic it's not just the decision maker in the system but now also the person who's who's kind of receiving the guidance and in general is expected to follow it um yeah further areas of study lots more research to be done on this and interesting dynamics to continue to explore
1: absolutely and i i think um yeah it's going to depend a lot on who who is the patient receiving mm-hmm. um particular kinds of information, there was, um, yeah, I think some patients, maybe particularly younger patients, uh, you know, are very, are very comfortable with, with the idea of, of yeah, diagnosis coming from an automated system. Um, I've read some research where physicians have recounted feeling kind of guilty in a clinical encounter because they're not talking to the patient. They're, you know, mm they're looking at their screen, they're, they're scanning it. And, but when patients after that same encounter have been asked, well, well how you know, how is the encounter for you? They were quite happy, some were quite happy to say, well, I was very glad that the physician was taking the time to get the knowledge they needed. And, and that's, you know, so some patients are really valorizing that time spent to, to gain that, I don't know, kind of objective knowledge, if you will. And other patients have, you know, are much more interested, I think, in having a physician who, who first of all, looks at them, and who, who kind of shows themselves, um, yeah, more of a more of a conversation partner. There was a, a great article in the New York Times, um, not too long ago, about how, how physicians are using chat GPT, mm. to kind of make sure, well, one example was, you know, in a difficult situation, different difficult clinical encounter, can chat GPT help physicians provide, you know, a, a kind of a smoother, a, a smoother advice giving smoother encounter. And physicians were really um kind of grateful for this option and, and said that they were using it. And and I yeah, that was really interesting to read because you do think, okay, that's that's great if it does help the patient, but from the patient perspective, yeah, to think upwards and to think, okay, that was really useful what the physician told me, but they got it all from ChatGPT. It does change a little bit how you might, yeah, how you might absorb um, the information being being given to you.
0: Yeah, and it it highlights for me this question of the use of AI in an education setting versus in a clinical setting. We have Mm -hmm. all these components of trust that are complicated by things. And in some ways we have the advantage in an educational setting of being able to use things like standardized patients, Mm -hmm. role-playing other pieces to allow for a simulated clinical environment without the risk that the patient is turned off, the patient doesn't wanna follow physician instructions, et cetera. So as you think about this medical education component, are there ways in which you're imagining AI can come in to start giving students the opportunity to gain skills or gain practice in certain areas that could help them to build on on what this patient physician relationship should ideally look like
1: Yeah it's a it's a great question I think you know to try to answer it in a, in a very general way I I think it's important that medical education starts to kind of integrate basic knowledge of computer science and some data science, I think this is important for medical students to learn also about the kinds of knowledge that are being generated and the limitations of those knowledge. And then alongside that more, um, I guess, technical um, kind of shift within medical education, I think on the ethics side of things, it's equally it's equally important to to think about the yeah the whole context in which these AI systems are being developed are are owned you know very often I mean there are private companies these are kind of you know there's a a real mixing of like the profit motive and the the drive for more knowledge and and to kind of to think about disempowerment you know our all patients going to benefit from equally from artificial intelligence in medicine? I mean, I think it's pretty easy to, to say no, I, I don't think they are. And, and that kind of ability to think critically um, about the role of these, these tools uh, is, yeah, ideally that would be, be a key part of, of medical education from now on.
0: Yeah, I think your your point is well made and taken about how it would be unreasonable to expect that AI could benefit all patients equally. And it makes me think about some of the biases that we know exist within the data sets that these large language models were trained on. Uh, You know, it's a tool that mimics human speech, human writing, trained on biased data. So it makes sense that in what it generates, it recreates those biases, but it does so in a way that isn't transparent. Um, the mm-hmm. AI, because it's not sentient, can't reflect on those biases and and have a sense of what is biased or isn't biased or where the bias might enter in in a way that we are are you know always scrutinizing ourselves and thinking about those particular elements. Um it, does that sort of lead us down a path where these, these objective tools are are masking those biases and ultimately making the job. Of, of a physician to acknowledge biases, et cetera, does, is it actually making their job harder because of how it's masking those?
1: Yeah, this is, I think you put your finger a really um, burning question because, yeah, I think that is the biggest risk with in relation to biased data is that we're just kind of perpetuating the kind of oppressive social relationships or existing health inequalities that we know to exist. And if we we have these this data that is not inclusive and not fair or, you know, uses the data of very homogeneous populations like um, white males of a certain age, uh, doesn't have the same kind of accuracy for diagnosing and and treating minorities well you know who who is benefiting and as you say we this has the potential to be very very harmful and it's and there is an, a a tendency to nevertheless assign it some kind of objectivity i mean there there are many examples um in the media, there was a an algorithm that was widely used in American hospitals to to refer people to healthcare programs after an intervention, and it was found to be systematically discriminating against against Black people. So the, the yeah the worry is that these societal kind of conflicts and existing health inequalities are just mirrored back to us, and in some ways perpetuated or, or kind of escalated um and and that we still get to call this progress (laughs) progress in healthcare yeah it's a big worry
0: yeah it, it makes me think of of some of my previous work in child welfare where those same types of algorithms that are designed to refer people or do screenings or other things are inherently flawed because of the data sources uh so for example it makes sense if you could gather all kinds of information about a child and their family after receiving a report of child maltreatment to use all that information, to judge the likely risk to a child. But if you're more likely to have certain types of data about certain types of families, uh, Mm -hmm. for example, perhaps uh, families who have lived in a County or a state for a long period of time, because ultimately they're less mobile, which means there's more data. And Mm -hmm. if some of those family members may be, uh, unequally affected by, say, involvement with the criminal justice system, those families then show up as presenting a possible greater risk to a child, meaning more extreme intervention upon receiving a report of child maltreatment. You end up in this case where what's touted as something that's objective, something that will remove bias, something that takes the human out of it, is in fact uh, not even just... You know, working as well as humans, but in fact is making things worse in a Mm -hmm. way that perhaps a human would not, and so I I do worry about seeing those same things. Then there's the trust component too. Here you've got an algorithm, you've presented it with great fanfare. It was developed with great attention and you know very carefully, is rolled out to the public with the suggestion that it will remove bias, and then when bias is found you potentially end up in a worse place you were than before you introduced the model, because now people see a system they may already have skepticism of, and now they see that it's developed a tool they said would remove bias and is actually even more biased than before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're back to this undermining trust piece.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a really fascinating example from, from child welfare. And yeah, you can think of undocumented migrants, you know, who traditionally kind of avoid uh, healthcare structures as another, yeah, whole whole, um, yeah, pool of people who are not well represented in in data, and and ultimately just to pick up on what you say, I think there are so many ways um, that one can be dis- disempowered in the context of AI systems, and and data bias is a is a, a huge issue, but yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this in the context of of work I've been doing with psychologists here at McGill. Um, you know what we see in in some patients is that connectivity is such a problem. Privacy is is another huge problem when people live close together in you know yeah places where they they cannot access um digital devices in a way that is that is private. Uh, those are just kind of examples, but but yeah apps that cost money, a smartphone that costs money as well. There are there are many ways in which some people are excluded or if not <laughs> fully excluded, you know, like do not benefit as much. And as you say, in some cases um have their their health care made, made worse um, by the use of these systems.
0: So it strikes me that's kind of the piece of preparing students, preparing our future physicians to be thinking about these tools critically. At the same time, I wonder, where can we give students a leg up when it comes to embracing these tools and understanding their use? Are there, are there positive sides that we ignore because we get so caught up in the very valid and important questions about things like privacy and access and so on. Like I'm, I'll am i call myself a, a tech skeptic in general. Um, I have a lot of concerns about the way our hyperconnectivity connectivity and the way that, you know, the internet specifically is this kind of global infrastructure changes our patterns of human interaction and develops faster than we can develop social norms for how to handle it. But acknowledging my own biases and my own perspectives, am I landing you know, too negative on this? Are, mm-hmm. are there ways in which this could be integrated into medical education that, in fact, could allow students to move along their path better or to become more empathetic so that they're more ready when they're when they're leaving med school and moving into that world, more ready to connect with patients and find that connection? Am I, am I, am I being too much of a, of a Danny Downer here?
1: <laughs> well, I might be, I might be as, as well, but maybe we should think of it as some kind of healthy skepticism. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. I think that that critical thinking does not have to be uh, always an only negative. I think that, that skepticism involves a knowing the limitation of, of the, tools you are using. And yeah, to, to answer in, in terms of my, my, my own kind of biases, I've um, been using uh, or been interested in chat GPT for some, for some time. And I, had, I, I don't know if, if I can extrapolate out of my own experience, but it's really disconcerting to have the system give you an answer to a, a factual question, a question to which there would really be a yes or no answer, not a complicated ethical question. And to to have that answer be wrong and mm. to watch the system justify that wrong answer. I still use chat GPT, but I, I really feel most comfortable doing so in areas where I know that I have some kind of knowledge that will allow me to to if not pick up immediately on a mistake, but to question, to, if I want to, to question the system that I'll be able to. And maybe what you're saying through the health, your kind of healthy skepticism is, yeah, we have to know the, the limitations of our tools, but that doesn't mean that um, some tools are, are super efficient are, are can, can save uh, time in many respects, can cut down on redundancies, um, can can integrate um, information, uh, you know, from different specialities about a patient in a more holistic way. I think also maybe on a positive note, it's absolutely true that some patients are benefit a lot. It's just, yeah, I, and I think it's important to recall that on the level of, um, you know, an individual patient, even an individual patient physician relationship, there can be a lot of of beneficial things that come out of um that come out of the you know these high-tech uh solutions however i do think it's important to remember that medicine is not just about any one individual's health you know no matter how excellent it's also providing a kind of a a social good and and we're obliged to to think about the health of all and and you're right maybe we're too negative in in academia and and we should all maybe we have to all lighten up a bit but I do I also (laughs) see it as our role you know you can read the I mean maybe I spend too much time reading kind of um, advertisements from tech companies but the amount of hype that goes into these devices and the way in which individual companies promise to provide provide a device I mean call it like I don't know a, a complicated thermometer that will allow you to integrate uh, temperature setting, and and this is promoted as being kind of pro- able to provide new knowledge that you haven't had, empowering for individual patients because you can take control of your health,
0: hmm. health,
1: and uh, promoting equity in the sense of becoming more accessible to all, and that's where I really have a lot of uh, questions, I guess particularly about the empowerment. And the equity. Although I think it's also a valid question, you know, h- how new is some of this knowledge? Um, and that's what I see. Yeah, that's that's how I see kind of the academics role to, to push back a little bit and, and hence hence a bit the the negativity.
0: Well, and, and then to ask the question, you know, the, the question that came to mind when you said that was, well, what is empowering to a patient? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, empowering to a patient, meaning a sense that the patient feels that they are able to access healthy foods, to make choices in what they're purchasing based on what what they want for their health, that they're able to prepare it and eat it, et cetera. I could see that there are many steps for that particular empowering piece. And there are roles for the health system to play, there's roles for society as, as a whole to play in things like that. The question of information access I'm wondering, is it more empowering to know you have all this information or is it more disempowering to know that it's being kept from you and kept hidden and that that creates a sense for you that somehow there are secrets that the health system holds on to, that the physician holds on to, that you're not allowed to know. And you you Mm -hmm. made this point in our outline of, of this conversation that we're having, where you noted concern already in the 19th century. That the physician was moving away from what we now call narrative medicine, you know, listening to the patient, hearing their story and understanding it, because now they had ways to collect objective knowledge. We have a stethoscope and we can listen for things and this will give us the information that we need. Information that by definition is specialized to the physician. They have the tool, they have the, you know, they're listening and they have the knowledge to interpret it. Um, so we've we've kind of been down this road before. It seems mm-hmm. to me. Um, mm-hmm. are, are are we prepared to take the lessons from that and and move forward in a productive way?
1: Yeah. Well, th- thanks for bringing up the historical angle, which I I think is really fascinating. And I it's I think it's right to say that you know there are these kind of big big topics: physician patient relationship. Who has the expert knowledge? How horizontal? You know, how horizontal are these relationships? These are not ones that we're encountering now for the first time. Uh, they have recurred throughout history, um, throughout medical practice, and and that the idea of a kind of of quantifiable, somehow more objective knowledge um, being more valid knowledge than, for example, patients description of their own symptoms um patient's voice you're absolutely right to you know remind that it it does date back to the 19th century that was when you know, the stethoscope was invented and physicians were then able to bypass effectively patients voices and to really kind of get right in to the patient's body without yeah without without hear- or hearing them hearing the body in a different way not through the voice but but through their tools um and this it was in i guess the 1970s the emergence of bioethics a new kind of recognition of patient autonomy the importance of empowerment like we were talking before this really challenged some of the assumptions at the time it was the era of the first heart transplant there was a situ- the the question well you know what kind of life is important Wait, what do patients actually want in the context of these these new Technology. This really came to prominence, and these, this is this discussion of, of who is empowered by what, what the patients want. This continues until today, um, and it's interesting to see how the language of empowerment is kind of appropriated by those who are um, at the cutting edge of technology. It's a uh, it, it, there are also some kind of marketing. Um, instincts at play here. For example, one one concern I have is about patients, you know, it's not like patients really have a lot of say in how their data gets used and in in where it goes and who sees it. And it's it's all fine to to market something as empowering, but but what if you know patients are vulnerable? What if a, a health insurance sees something that they the patient didn't necessarily want them to see questions like that so so we kind of come back to the question of equity which to my mind we can't really get around to say well well yes some tools are empowering to patients who have the time who have the money to maybe also the the knowledge to use them in ways that are beneficial to them but to what extent does that empowerment trickle down uh, to other to other groups?
0: We've sort of had this conversation about genetic testing with insurance mm. companies, and are there pieces that that you wouldn't want others to see? And yet, I guarantee uh, this holiday season, if you look at a variety of gift lists, you will see, oh, get someone a twenty three andme Me test kit. Twenty three and Me then owns your genetic information, uh, and it's yeah. unclear you know, what, what that might be used for uh, now or in the future. Um, so mm. hopefully we can use some of those lessons where, where we've had those conversations and, and pay attention. Let's talk about the future and kind of our, our bigger takeaways from this. Are Are there things that you're watching for in this area, things that maybe you've got your your antennae up that you're saying, you know, if this happens, I, I want to be mindful of it and be wary of it?
1: Hmm. Well, I guess I kind of feel like after COVID, we can't really ignore the social determinants of health. I mean, we knew about them before, but I just feel it 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 made visible on such a wide scale these these disparities. I mean, you just mentioned kind of personalized or genomic medicine. Like at the end of the day, where you live, you know, your zip code remains a better predictor of your health than your genetic code. Um, so I don't know, I'm kind of waiting waiting for that to be acknowledged in a very fundamental way um, by on the tech side, I guess, that's the hope. I've recently uh, become really interested in the environmental impacts of these devices, which are kind of, you know, the, even the word cloud, uh, kind of implies a non-tangible, non-physical imprint. And this is very far from the case. There's some interesting work in the UK, for example, about how, yeah, about a more holistic vision of health and medicine. That's actually a kind of a green medicine, or, or says, okay, well, you know, how what kind of health are we pursuing when our natural environment isn't healthy? And and that's that's uh, kind of niche right now, but to my mind, that's crucially important uh, going forward.
0: Well, talk about the zip code question, right? You know, how much from from those zip codes, of course, some of it is socioeconomic status that is something that, you know, people of a certain SES are often clustered together and uh, maybe grouped in that way. So that of course is, is something that matters. But I also raise that question like, what if we took all the money that was sunk into these large language models, as well as all the, you know, power and other things, and we put that into cleaning up the environment in a certain area, or we put it into, uh, you know, s- sustainable housing for people, uh, the ways to grow food locally that are sustainable and also empower people. Would we end up with further improvements of health than we did from these fancy tools that we want to roll out?
1: Well, thanks. Thank you for saying that, because I think it's really important to remember that seeing from like a global health perspective, the biggest health problems we have today are related to things like good nutrition, as you say, um, good hygiene, clean water. These these are not things that need a particularly expensive, fancy, high-tech solution. Um, And to think that we can solve the world's health problems by by expensive technologies is, is ultimately quite a an elitist um perspective.
0: Yeah, that kind of technology optimism or or solutionism that uh hey, if only we had a better tool, we can do it, as opposed to saying what can come from the community themselves, what can the community do um to address yeah. these issues?
1: Yeah. Ultimately it's a problem with allocation of resources, I think, more than than knowledge that we want.
0: Indeed. Are there a couple key messages you'd like to leave our audience with things that you really want them to know as a result of, you know, kind of your thinking in this area?
1: I guess to come back to that point about medical education, I, I think it's, um yeah, it's going to be so beneficial for medical students of the future to be able to integrate somewhat um, the the knowledge the computer science based knowledge associated with artificial intelligence systems I think this is so crucial um, to understand the the status of that knowledge you know what it what it provides and at the same time how to think critically about the quality of of knowledge provided by AI so in terms of things like transparency um, privacy and, and fairness. So I, I think, yeah, one, the, the, the technological tools don't come without the necessary kind of ethical reflection.
0: All right. Well, Dr. Vanessa Rampton, what a pleasure it was speaking with you.
1: Thanks so much, Michael. Very nice talking to you.